I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the biggest issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all the resources we have, it can feel like something is missing in our faith experience. In the last episode, we began to talk about what I believe to be the biggest factor contributing to this sense of lack in our faith, and that is depth. I shared with you some scriptures that use the analogy of the roots of a plant, like Ephesians 3 verse 17, which says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And then there was Colossians 2 verse 7, which says, let your roots grow down into him. Then your faith will be strong. All of these verses demonstrate a relationship between the strength of our faith and the depth of our faith. But there is one incredibly important passage that we haven't considered yet, a passage that probably demonstrates the most significant link between the quality of our faith and the depth of our faith. And it's found in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And we'll pick it up from verse 3. It says, Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun. And since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. This passage is all about the possible responses that we will see to the gospel. It tells us that there are essentially four types of responses. The first category is the only response where the seed is completely rejected. The other three basically accept it with variation in its outcome. There's the rocky soil, the seed that falls among the thorns, and the good soil. Now, I'm not going to go super theological on you here because it's just not my skill set. But what we can deduce is that the preference of Jesus is that we would all be a category four. It's fairly obvious that his desire is that all of us who believe in him produce a harvest on account of the gospel in our lives. The quantity may differ. He says 30, 60 or 100, but it's besides the point. The point is that the seed is received in such a way that it is able to take root and reproduce something significant. The last seed is very important in this story, obviously, and for many reasons. But at least one of those reasons is that it demonstrates the capability of the seed. We can see that the seed has this innate potential and that potential is the same in each scenario, which means that the single most influential factor in the journey of a seed is the soil and its surroundings. So let's just consider these two other types of soil, category two and category three. When I meet people throughout life, they either call themselves a Christian or they don't. They may occasionally pray. They may even believe there is a God. But if they don't believe that Jesus is that God, they generally won't call themselves a Christian. This would mean that their response is a category one, right? So who falls into the category of two and three? 
it seems to be suggesting that the most likely person who would fall into category two and three are people who currently call themselves a Christian, or at least they once called themselves a Christian. So let's talk about category two. Category two is the rocky soil. In verses 16 to 17, Jesus is discussing the seed that fell on the rocky soil. He says, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, there's that analogy again, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. What's Jesus's definition of lasting long? He doesn't actually stipulate it here, and maybe deliberately so. Technically, you could be a Christian for 30 years of your life and then face something really challenging and fall away. On this basis of the category system, that would be a category two, right? And what is it that causes them to give up? Having problems or being persecuted. Okay. I know that Christians in our Western world have endured some harder times than usual in the last 10 to 15 years, probably on account of certain laws having been passed. But I think we would be hard-pressed to call this persecution like our brothers and sisters in other countries. We aren't being asked to give up our faith or face death. Even for myself, I've certainly experienced some complications being the only Christian in a Hindu family, but I could hardly call that persecution. Some of the situations I got into with family members was my own fault because of my own insensitivity. If we were to experience genuine persecution, it might produce a very different number of believers showing up to church on Sundays. Just being honest. Okay, then there's category three, seed that fell among the thorns. Again, Jesus explains further in verses 18 to 19. He says, The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. So this is essentially saying that distraction causes the seed to produce nothing. I'm not really sure if it's even accurate to call it distraction, actually, because it's not merely that we lack focus. It's the fact that there will be some that believe that wealth and anything else could satisfy us or produce the kind of security in life that we all desire, despite having heard and received the gospel. And then we come to category four, which is a bit more straightforward in some ways. The good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word. Category four produces a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times. Now, I don't really want to ask the rather obvious question about these categories, which is, where would you place yourself? Because that's a tough question to answer. But let's ask ourselves a simpler question. Is the gospel producing in you a great harvest? Is there a legacy of good being produced on account of the gospel in your life? What this parable shows us is that our response to the gospel isn't the decision we made all those years ago to receive Christ. It wasn't this decision I made as an eight-year-old when I said, Jesus, come into my heart. Our response to the gospel is the decision we make every day in our receptivity to Christ and the degree to which we allow this gospel to shape and renew us. To produce a harvest, we can't expect to ride on the coattails of that moment 20 years ago when we said yes to Jesus. 
How are we responding today? How am I responding 30 years on when challenges and worries come my way, when opportunities for wealth and comfort are at my door? Because the one with shallow roots gives up and the one that is crowded out with worries does not produce a harvest. This has nothing to do with whether you show up to church and whether you read your Bible and pray. It's all about what we are allowing the gospel to do in us throughout our entire life. You know, I first started really thinking about this concept of depth a few years ago. I realized that my relationship with God was so conditional. I had stepped away from the role of a pastor, which I absolutely loved, and the decision was totally led by the Holy Spirit. But despite being obedient, I felt so down. As a younger Christian, I was always told that you would have peace when you were in the will of God, but I wasn't experiencing that peace. Why wasn't I excited about this new path God had me on? It was obviously his plan. At the same time, I kept reading the Gospels and the, and the letters in the New Testament and kept thinking to myself, how do I even think that what I am going through is that big a deal? The early church was dying for the gospel. The worst thing that had happened to me in that season was that I hadn't gotten what I wanted. Now, it's important for every believer to hear this. I am not advocating for you or any believer to deny or dismiss your feelings. I think we are far more guilty of not acknowledging our feelings in the Western world, especially Christians. So let me make this so clear. Denial has never been our friend. It is not on our side, like it can sometimes deceive us into believing. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a really strong correlation between denial and shallowness. But what it did do is it made me wonder what I thought the Christian life was about. Did I really understand the gospel if I was so invested in my own preferences being met? That was the catalyst for my path toward depth. Surely the gospel had been limited since the kind of transformation it was capable of producing in me had not come to pass. Clearly, there was something wrong with the soil. In my pursuit of depth in my faith, I've committed myself to have the kind of faith that compels me to love, to serve and to follow God in spite of my comfort, my preferences and even my opinions. There was a time when I didn't think I would ever be able to work in a church again, not because I didn't see it in my future, but just because I was afraid because of my past experiences. In fact, it was a bit of a journey to even attend church regularly at a time. But in June of 2020, I very much felt God leading me to apply for a job in the church that I'd been attending and the church that I continue to attend today. It was completely unexpected. And at first, I dismissed the idea because it didn't quite seem to make any sense in terms of the direction God had been taking me in, as in I had just started on this journey of writing books. And we also didn't really need the extra money as a family. But there I was feeling pretty confident that it was exactly where he was leading me. And because I was pursuing this depth in my faith, I knew that I had to go for it because depth in my faith meant doing something that made absolutely no sense, that might even make me uncomfortable, that could bring back old memories and feelings that I wasn't sure I was equipped to handle because obedience creates deep roots. 
I even had questions as to whether I would enjoy the job, but I settled it in my heart that it didn't really matter because depth in my faith meant that I would do whatever he said without condition. I mean, do we realize that there's like a whole bunch of people in society who don't get a choice in where or how much they work? They aren't doing these personality tests that we do and work out the perfect role for them and where their sweet spot will be. The fact that we actually get that kind of choice is such a privilege and blessing in itself. See, every time I'm obedient to God without condition, I get stronger and increase my likelihood of saying yes to the whatever call. Do you know what I mean by the whatever call? I mean the stuff where God says something so ridiculous that nobody with basic logic would do it unless they got a word from God. It's the kind of stuff that even people at church look at you and go, what are you doing, Mel? That's crazy. So like Hosea, who married an adulterous woman because God told him to, I can tell you now that his peers probably wouldn't have thought it was a great idea. A woman with no guarantee of ever being faithful to him and God says to him, see that girl? See that girl over there, Hosea, the unfaithful one? I want you to marry her because your marriage is going to be a prophetic analogy of my relationship with my people. Oh yeah, and she's going to be terribly unfaithful to you because that's what my people have done to me. But she's the one. It's not the advice we would give to any single Christian that we actually cared about. That's the whatever call. Or John the Baptist who walks out into a terribly barren atmosphere, literally the wilderness. Talk about the opposite to the promised land. He's surviving on honey and locusts. Mmm, yummers. Imagine enduring the elements, the heat and the dust and the sleeping arrangement. He wouldn't have had one of those fancy V-shaped pillows to accommodate that rocky floor. And of course, the um, <clears throat> toilet situation. Look, it's basically all the reasons I still haven't gone camping yet. You know, when you read about John, you might be confused into thinking that this was the fate of a banished man. But no, he wasn't banished. He had chosen this life so that he would be pure and untainted for God to fulfill a prophecy from more than 400 years before. That is the whatever call. It is the commitment to do literally whatever God asks. Now, I realize that I'm talking about some pretty radical ideas, but I'm not embellishing anything. I'm just sharing exactly what is in scripture in plain sight for all of us to see. The kind of things that we often glaze over. Is it not possible that the real category fours are the ones who are simply willing to take up the whatever call? Okay, I'm not suggesting that we all need to run out now and get in the wild and get one of those camel skin cloaks and loafers like how the Jesus movies generally portray John. Because here is the thing. Nobody in a faith community should do anything that is driven by something other than love and worship. None of us were meant to listen to messages like this and force ourselves to become something that is not consistent with what is in our hearts. That is not depth. Depth is being adamant that you won't fake it. Depth is being adamant to pursue a real change in transformation. But we do need to acknowledge that our hearts aren't there yet. And we still have more depth required in our faith to experience the transformed life like we see in scripture. You see, the real priority is to allow the radical nature of the seed to produce the radical harvest 
This is not motivated by the expectations of man, including our own expectations. It's not motivated by fear or guilt or shame or responsibility or selfish ambition because none of these things actually produce a truly transformed life. Even if it changes you, it didn't change you because of the seed. It changed you because of something else you gained from it. So it might produce a harvest, but it would be the wrong type of crop. For instance, if you're serving in a church right now because it makes people approve of you, then sure, it'll produce something, but you'll have cucumbers instead of rice. See, it's not going to count if it's not rice, at least not for you. See, when we consider all of this in light of eternity and heaven, any harvest you produce doesn't count unless it's derived from the right seed. That's what this parable is telling us. This is also demonstrated in Matthew 6, where Jesus is encouraging his followers not to fast and pray as the Pharisees were known to do, with the intention of displaying how righteous they were before other men. He says, truly, I tell you, they have received all the reward they will ever get. That's it. That's all they will ever get is whatever it brings to them immediately in this moment, in this lifetime. Anything you do on earth for show, approval or personal comfort has no eternal value. They weren't going to receive spiritual credits in heaven for what they were doing and neither are we. Whatever it is that you are trying to get, praise, approval, acceptance, power, whatever it might be, I can assure you that it will be momentary and it will keep you hungry. So here are some of the thoughts for you to consider and pray over. Are you really producing a harvest? Could you really respond to the whatever call? Like, I mean, really. And if not, Where is the limit for you? Is it your preferences? Is it your opinions? Is it being approved of by others? Don't be afraid to ask these kinds of questions. The harvest of the seed depends on it. By the way, if anyone's ever tried locusts, just direct message me on Insta or Facebook because I'm, I mean, I've assumed they aren't tasty, but maybe it's like, maybe it's a lot tastier than it sounds like a like a good camembert on a cracker or something like that or maybe like chicken which apparently every other meat seems to taste like when you ask someone what does crocodile taste like it tastes like chicken anyway in the next episode i want to answer this question what is the harvest what would be produced in our lives when we are a category four we understand that the kind of receptivity to the gospel would produce 30 60 and even 100 times as much as had been planted But what exactly would we be seeing? We've got some idea of the kinds of qualities that would be produced. We've kind of talked about it a little bit already, which is following God without condition, getting to a place where we can respond to the whatever call. But there's still so much more to this. Additionally, we have often assumed and affirmed certain things as fruit culturally that really aren't. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.